Maigo Vanen, and welcome to Second Breakfast Discussing Middle-Earth. I'll start this podcast by addressing the Oliphant in the room, that I've been gone for about a year now. You see, it all started on my uncle's birthday party, during his speech he just kind of vanished and left me with his gold ring. Uh, I won't get into it, but there may have been a wizard and a volcano involved. Either way, I've since returned home to a pretty crazy pandemic going on. So, with all the changes to my work and my studies and my life overall, I finally found the time to get back to this podcast. In real life, I'm almost done my degree, so I hope to secure regular podcast time again. But, without further ado, let's dive right into today's topic. So last year, I said the next episode will be about the dwarves, and I'm here to make on that promise. Today, we're going to discuss this hardy and often badass race in Middle-earth, specifically on their origins and the different dwarvish clans. I briefly touched on their creation in the episode on the Ents, but today I will start with their origins in detail. Unlike elves and men, dwarves were not created by the god of the universe, Eru Iluvatar. Elves and men were always part of Eru's plan, and they were to be the only race of sentient beings to inhabit Arda, besides of course the Valar and the Maiar. Of the Valar, there was one named Aule, who was the smith and craftsman of the Valar. He fashioned and created much of Arda, and also constructed the two lamps of the Valar, as well as the vessels of the sun and moon. Yet, he learned to pass along his knowledge of crafting to others, specifically the children of Iluvatar. But they were not yet awake in Middle-earth, and due to his impatience, Aule decided to create beings of his own, the Khazad, or the dwarves. Aule created seven dwarves, the fathers of the dwarves, and their wives, and taught them the language he devised for them called Khazdul. However, it was not in Aule's power to create sentient life, for he did not wield the secret fire, as it's called, that breathed life into the Einar, the Valar, the Maiar, elves and men, and Arda itself. Thus, his creations were mere extensions of Aule's own power, essentially puppets to his will. Eru learned of this act and reprimanded Aule, who told Eru of his desires. However, in his repentance to Eru, Aule decided to destroy his dwarves. He raised his hammer to destroy them, but as he swung down, the dwarves cowered and begged for mercy, which is greatly significant because up until now, their will was Aule's will. So, the fact that they had the voice and mind of their own to beg for mercy showed that Eru had granted them independent life, and this was Eru's way of showing Aule that he adopted the dwarves as his own children. However, Eru would not allow the dwarves to become the first alive in Middle-earth, for it was in his plan for the elves to be the firstborn. Thus, Aule laid the fathers of the dwarves to sleep until that time came. Aule laid the seven fathers and their female companions each under their own mountain, from which would descend their clans. Four of the fathers were laying somewhere to the east, and their clans do not come into the tales. The Iron Fists and Stiff Beards, and the Blacklocks and Stonefoots. Under Mount Dolmed in the Arid Luin, or the Blue Mountains, were laying the two fathers from which would descend the Broad Beams and Firebeards, who would come to live in the dwarf cities of Nogrod and Belagost. And under Mount Gundabad in the Misty Mountains was laid Durin, 
the eldest of all the fathers, though he was lain alone without a female companion. From him came the Longbeards, or Durance folk as they were later called. The fathers awoke about 100 years after the elves awoke. Each father became king of their clan and created their cities and strongholds. So, let's dive into each one. Again, there are no tales about the Iron Fists, Stiff Beards, Black Locks, or Stonefoots, other than their clan names. It is possible that their lines mixed with Durin's folk, and that is how they come into the tales. The Broadbeams and the Firebeards founded Nogrod and Belagos in the Blue Mountains, and they forged an alliance with the Elves. Though, it is not clear if the two clans kept to their own cities or if they shared them. Thus, I will refer to the two factions as the Dwarves of Belagos and the Dwarves of Nogrod. It seems the Dwarves of Belagos were friendlier with the Elves. In the First Age, they helped them build the Elven strongholds of Menegroth and Nargothrond. They even joined the Union of Maedros against Morgoth, lending their army and fighting in the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. They were well skilled in smithing, learning lots from the elves, second only to the dwarves of Nogrod, but they did create chainmail armor. However, their kin in Nogrod were not so friendly with the elves. They were initially friendly with them, their jewels and weapons finding their way to King Thingol and Doriath. And perhaps the dwarves from Nogrod aided the construction of Menegroth and Nargothrond as well. They also were part of the Union of Maedros too. However, when King Thingol acquired one of the Silmarils, one of those powerful jewels of immeasurable value in the First Age, he asked the dwarves of Nogrod to fix a jewel in Nauglamir, also called the Necklace of the Dwarves, which was a beautifully crafted necklace imbued with gems from Valinor. But the dwarves grew greedy over the Silmaril, so they killed King Thingol and took the Nauglamir for their own. However, all but two of the dwarves were tracked and killed, the other two escaping. Those remaining two dwarves went back to Nogrod and told their kin that it was the elves who betrayed them. Thus, the dwarves of Nogrod massed their forces and set out against Menegroth. The dwarves of Belagos tried to dissuade them from this action, and they didn't join them. The dwarves of Nogrod ended up sacking Menegroth and destroyed it. But on their return, the man Baron, who wedded King Thingol's daughter, led the elves against the dwarves and slaughtered them with the help of the Ents, and this spurred the animosity between the dwarves and elves. From here, the dwarves of Belagos started migrating eastward in fear of reprisal from the elves. Not long after came the War of Wrath, which ended with Morgoth's defeat and the sinking of Beleriand under the ocean. Belagost and Nogrod were ruined during the war, and thus, most of the dwarves of Belagost, and many of those remaining in Nogrod, left east to join with Durin's folk, the Longbeards. However, some did stay in those ruined cities, but they never again came to great power. But, before we move on from Beleriand and the First Age completely, there was a group called the Petty Dwarves. They were made of exiles from the other clans, apparently shorter, and more unsociable than the other dwarves. They made early settlements in Amon Rude, and in the caves where Nargothrond would soon be built, before the elves and dwarves of the Blue Mountains came to build it. When the elves first came to those parts, 
they believed the petty dwarves to be animals, and so they hunted them. But after connecting with the dwarves in the Blue Mountains, they realized that the petty dwarves were actually dwarves, and they were left alone, coming in and out of tales with no lasting significance, until the last of the petty dwarves named Mim was killed by Hurin. East of the Blue Mountains, Durin woke in Mount Gundabad, but he did not find his main stronghold there. He wandered in the Misty Mountains, where he came to a vale with a still pool. When he looked into it, he could see his reflection with a crown of seven stars, which was a constellation that was from then on named Durin's Crown. It could then be seen in the waters at any time of day. He named the lake Keled Zaram and built his main stronghold in the mountain above. The city he founded was Khazad-dûm, more commonly known as Moria, the greatest kingdom ever built by the dwarves. He lived through most of the First Age, and ever after, the odd dwarf would be born and be so like Durin that they believed the dwarf to be Durin reincarnated. They believed Durin would be reincarnated a total of seven times, Durin the seventh marking the decline of the dwarves. Durin the second reigned during the Second Age, when the dwarves of the Blue Mountains came to Moria after their homes were destroyed. They delved Moria even deeper, massing their wealth of Mithril, prompting the Noldor elves of Linden to migrate to the land of Eregion and trade with the dwarves. It was from these elves that came Celebrimbor, who would, under the teaching of Sauron in disguise, craft the Rings of Power. Around the year 1600 in the Second Age, Durin III came to power, and to him was given the mightiest Ring of Power of the Seven given to the dwarves. The Rings of Power given to the dwarves did not have the result Sauron intended, like with the Nazgul. The dwarves resisted that power, but instead the rings caused in them an overwhelming greed for treasure. Sauron reclaimed two of those seven rings, four of the others being destroyed by dragonfire or being held in their dragon's hordes. But Durin's ring stayed in the line for a long time. Now, in the Third Age, the ring caused the dwarves to become greedy for Mithril and Moria, and as they dug deeper and deeper, they awoke a sleeping Balrog under the mountain, which had fled there after the War of Wrath. This caused the dwarves to flee Khazad-dûm, and it was then renamed Moria, meaning Black Pit. They mostly fled north to the Grey Mountains, while some followed Thrain I, who went to Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. Durin's folk prospered in the Grey Mountains for a time, until dragons attacked them from the north. Some of them fled to the Iron Hills to the east, while many of them followed their new king Thror to Erebor to establish that kingdom. Until, of course, Smaug came and took over their kingdom. Most fled to the Iron Hills with the rest of their kin, but Thror and some of his dwarves went away south in exile, ending up in Dunland at the bottom of the Misty Mountains. Thror left for Moria, where he was slain by Azog the Goblin King, who resided there. But before Thror left for Moria, he gave the Ring of Power to his son Thrain II, as well as the map of Erebor. When Thrain heard of his father's death, he summoned all the dwarves to war. It is now presumed here that at least some dwarves from those other four clans, the Iron Fists, the Stiffbeards, Blacklocks, and Stonefoots, came at Thrain's call. The dwarf hosts battled the orcs in the Misty Mountains in a war now called the War of Dwarves and Orcs all leading to the Battle of Azanulbazar, 
or the Battle of Moria. Many dwarves died in that fight, including one of Thrain's sons, Frerin, Balin and Dwalin's father, Fundin, and Nain, who was Dain Ironfoot's father and killed by Azog. Thus, Dain avenged his father and killed Azog. This is also where Thorin earned his name Oakenshield for wielding an oak branch as a shield and weapon. The orcs were destroyed and the battle was won. Thrain wished to reclaim and repopulate Moria, but the dwarves' numbers were few, and the other clans did not think they could defeat the Balrog, named Durin's Bane. Thus, Thrain went to the Blue Mountains and re-established his dwindling kingdom there, in the ruins of Belagost. But, even though his people began to prosper and grow once more, he was restless to reclaim Erebor. With Balin and Dwalin, they ventured to Wilderland, east of the Misty Mountains. Yet one day, Balin and Dwalin awoke to find Thrain had disappeared. He was actually taken by the forces of Sauron, and imprisoned south in Sauron's stronghold of Dol Guldur, where Sauron took the final dwarven ring of power and left him to die. Yet, by great chance, Gandalf the Grey came to Dol Guldur to investigate the necromancer who dwelled there. He found Thrain imprisoned on the brink of death, but Thrain gave him the map to give to his son. Years later, back on the other side of the Misty Mountains, Gandalf was out and about doing his thing. He was concerned with Sauron and knew the north was vulnerable. And one of his main worries was Smaug. If he should ally with Sauron, he could wreak untold damage upon the north. He found Thorin and Bree and promised to help him with a quest for Erebor. With the help of Bilbo Baggins, Thorin led his company of dwarves to Erebor, awakening Smaug, who was ultimately killed. Then, the elves of Mirkwood and the men of Eskaroth came forward to Erebor demanding their share of the treasure, laying siege to the dwarves who refused to give up any of their treasure. Dain led his dwarves from the Iron Hills to aid Thorin, but then came the orc armies from the Misty Mountains and the Grey Mountains, led by Azog's son, Bolg. Thus, the elves, men, and dwarves fought together against the orcs, bats, and wargs, with the eventual help from the eagles and Bayorn, who came in the form of a bear. Bayorn found Thorin wounded and brought him out of the battle before going back to kill Bolg himself. Thorin died soon after the battle's ending. Dayan took over command of Erebor in his stead. Finally, we come to the events of the War of the Ring, where one notable Longbeard takes part, Gimli. He is chosen as part of the Fellowship of the Ring as the representative of the dwarves. Yet while he was off being tossed and sprinting all over Middle-earth, Sauron still had his eye on the northern dwarf realms. While Sauron's forces attacked Minas Tirith, he also sent twice as many Easterlings, men from the land called Rune, to Erebor. The dwarves of Erebor and the men of Dale held off against the attack until the Easterlings heard of Sauron's defeat and retreated. They lost half their number, but not first killing Dane. Thorin III succeeded him, and in the Fourth Age, he reforged friendships with men. Dwarves went to work rebuilding cities in Gondor and Helm's Deep in Rohan, some migrating there to the new dwarven realm of the Glittering Caves, where Gimli became lord. And it was through all of this, and modeled by Gimli and Legolas's friendship, that the animosity between elf and dwarf ended. And the last recorded event in the appendices is that Legolas and Gimli 
sailed to Valinor, making Gimli the only dwarf who ever ventured there. It is said that Durin VII re-established Moria and brought it to its original splendor, where the dwarves lived until the world grew old and the days of Durin's race ended. It is also said that the Vala Aule kept halls separate for his dwarves in the halls of Mandos, where the souls of the dead go. And after the controversial second prophecy of Mandos, which I spoke on in the Dagor Dagorath episode, the dwarves would awake once more after the final battle, to remake the world as it once was. The dwarves have such a lustrous history that not many know about, and that the movies, including the Hobbit movies, barely touch on. Actually, the Hobbit movies change a staggering amount of the history. Now, I'm not going to go into that discussion, because I am a believer that telling a story through movies is vastly different than telling through novel narratives. But maybe future work such as the new Amazon series will incorporate more dwarvish history. Sean Astin even says, the Mines of Moria are referred to a lot in Lord of the Rings, and I guess in the Hobbit trilogy you spend a little bit of time with them, but the culture of the dwarfs in the mines, I would love to see like five hours of that. <laughs> Us too, Sean. Next week's topic is on the Kingdom of Numenor and of its fall, so make sure you come back for that discussion. Farewell. <laughs>